Hi, everybody. My name is Donnie Daniels from the Old Patrolman and Old and Pearl Inspector from Session 88. And you're listening to the Old Patrol Podcast. Ain't no pro like the Old Patrol. Honor first and honor always. Greetings and welcome to Episode 5 of the Old Patrol HQ Podcast. I'm your host, Gil Maza. As a Border Patrol agent for over 23 years now, I have always admired and respected our rich, action-packed, and colorful heritage. My journeymen were hardcore, kick-ass alien catchers, and they passed on their knowledge, experience, and all our bad habits onto the next generation. Today we'll be talking with the legendary shadow catcher himself, law enforcement agent officer Hippolito Acosta, retired district director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, who has led an exemplary and amazing career in immigration enforcement, but got his humble beginnings in the United States Border Patrol. He was in session 109 in Los Fresnos, Texas. You don't want to miss this one. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first. Wow. Wow. So tell me, how did this come about? How did this, this whole idea come about? Well, you know, the, uh, the, you mentioned Newton Van Drunen. Uh, uh, so Newton Van Drunen went down a few months after, after I got to Chicago. And even though I was a trainee, I think the, the respect for my reputation really was enhanced by, by the Newton Van Drunen case. So there was a lot of respect for the management for, for the recommendations that I did. And I started doing a lot of undercover cases in Chicago, a lot of kind of documents uh, or uh, receiving uh, receiving illegal aliens that were being smuggled into the United States and could arrest the smugglers, but it was on a very slow, uh, small scale. But again, working in area control, one of the things that I found very frustrating that we would work sometimes with the ASU unit that was not a real unit, it was just a temporary unit, but we, we would work with them and we would catch a load of 15, 20, 25. And we would simply go to the office, process everybody. Uh, the smuggler, would, uh, the driver, would be guilty to a misdemeanor, uh, get a six-month suspended sentence, and they were all on the way back to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I found that very frustrating and a, and a waste of resources because my thoughts were that we should go after the smugglers themselves. But not only in Chicago, we should go after the ones all the way from where it originated. And uh, so Gary Reddick and I developed information on this smuggling organization run by the Medina family out of Juarez. The Medinas were involved in uh, marijuana smuggling. A huge part of it was uh, alien smuggling. So that was the area that we're going to concentrate on, alien smuggling. So we developed the information and found out actually that the El Paso sector ASU also had filed an investigation on the Medina family, but they had been doing it for several years and had gotten nowhere other than the drivers that we're talking about. So when we uh, developed that information, I actually went to Ted Giorgetti. Uh, and, and again, it's 1970 AM. I'm, I'm, I'm like a GS9 at the time. Mm-hmm. I go to Ted Giorgetti and, and I say, you know, we're not, we're not doing anything, Ted. And Ted had been a, a legendary agent as well. He got staffed in El Paso, but he had been a, a, a work patrol. And I, I said, Ted, we really want to go after are the Medinas. But they're in Juarez, and then they have some representatives here. And then I want to go into Juarez and get myself smuggled. I want to infiltrate them from, from all the way from Juarez to Chicago. <laughs> Honestly, Gil, I thought it was going to go nowhere. And again, it's a very different era back then because right. Ted George Eddy was the assistant district director, 
from Washington, he didn't go to the region, and he said, uh, hell, if that's what you want to do, and you think that's the right way to do it, do it. Wow. I, I just stood there and I said, <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> so, so actually, uh, you know, I started working on it. I, I want to say something about the some of our former agents as well, like Brian Paramet, who was her supervisor, uh-huh. long-time agent in El Paso with the Border Patrol. When I started working on the cover, Brian Perriman told me, he says, you know, you're the greatest undercover agent we've had here, but I want you to be a whole agent. I want you to do the reports. I want you to do the indictments. And, and I I had seen other Hispanic agents that had joined the Border Patrol because there was also an era where we switched it over from, from very small numbers of Hispanic agents to a large number of Hispanic agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot to be said about that, but nevertheless, coming back to this particular story, so... Brian said, I, want you, I don't want you to be like some of the other Hispanics that I work with, that they all want to do is work undercover, and somebody else ends up taking the credit. And I thought that was monumental for Brian to share that with me, because it was glad that I took the credit, but I never wanted to take the credit for myself, because there were so many people that were working and supporting me uh, in the shadows, if you would, yeah. that, uh, uh, that made the cases uh, happen. But because of Brian saying that, I started being very cognizant of the need for good report writing. So when the Medina case came up, I actually drafted up a proposal. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't have samples to go by uh, back then. Right. Uh, we didn't have guidelines to go. So I did the proposal on that one. And then on the Castillo case, uh, which is another case out of San Diego that I hope we get a chance to talk about. But uh, the so those proposals were important. And they were foundations for me, Gil, because as I grew through the years, uh, you know, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. Right. Like some of our like some of our shenanigans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Correct. And so you presented it, you got it approved, and now um, you uh, what did you do to prepare to make your way down and and begin to infiltrate that group in uh, in Juarez? Well, you know, some, some of the things that I did, I stopped, you know, I, I decided which identity I was going to use because I, I was always changing identities since I worked undercover over the years. I, uh, you know, I, I did a preparation. I stopped by, by the Border Patrol Center in El Paso. I did a briefing to a couple of the agents that were working on, on that same case as well uh, and told them where we're going to be at. Uh, and more with the anticipation that if something happened, that they would know where to find me. Right. Uh, I uh, I actually did a drive-by the location uh, in, in Juarez where the main smugglers were supposed to be uh, getting together often and doing a lot of the recruitment and a lot of the transactions. And then I spent a couple of days with uh, my sister in El Paso and and her husband. And you got to find this crazy, but I had them as family members. I wanted them to know where I was going through the quad. They dropped me off at the location where I went to infiltrate the organization. So again, no backup, uh, no, uh, no, you know, no, no cell phones back then. So that was uh, that was the first time I had, you know, I had done that. But I felt comfortable. I had a lot of anxiety and naturally a lot of, uh, certainly nervousness, uh, you know, as, despite the fact that, you know, I'm a Hispanic and I have, a, you know, I didn't have a lot of relatives in Mexico, but I knew a lot of people in Mexico. Uh, and I knew the culture. There's a big difference between somebody who is a American Hispanic and a Mexican. And that's one of the things that I had to be very cognizant of. So those are the things that the anxiety that I had when I was going in. And then secondly, thinking, what do I call? How do I get uh, to anybody? But the, uh, I ended up 
in the bar, and, and I walked in, and it was late at night. Uh, I walked in, and there's a lot of smoke in the bar, and there's a there's like shoehorn uh, as a bar, and uh, it's full, and there's people there with open with guns uh, that you can you can see there that they're that they're packing, and they have mm-hmm. on the back, their lower back uh, no 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 attempt to hide it. Uh, there's a couple of uh, policemen outside as well. And I walk into that place, and one of the things that I always mention, one of my favorite songs was playing uh, on the jukebox, uh, a song by Ramon Ayala. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening to, th- I'm listening to that, and again, I'm, and I'm thinking, why, why am I here? <laughs> so that goes off for a few seconds, and then I, and then I recall uh, where where I was, and I knew, even I was, I was a very young agent uh, at the time, you know, 25 years old, I believe. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is what we need to be doing. We need to go up to the main smugglers. And as luck would have it, Jose Medina, the smuggler that I was looking for, showed up uh, after a couple of hours there at the bar. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, uh, let me back up just for a second. And when you came to El Paso and presented this idea to the people there, you know, to make sure you got their buy-in and you got their backup, how did they react to, to, to this idea? Well, it, it was different. You know, we had uh, we had a lot of good agents in El Paso and, mm-hmm. and ASU. You know, Cindy uh, Pierre, Bob Torres, and George Rentasso. Uh You know, they they were they they left the idea. They uh, I didn't see by anybody saying we'll, we'll go monitor you to, to see you're okay. But it was like okay, uh, well, let us know how it goes. And uh, they, they, it was good. And at the same time, the reality is we didn't have. Any practice that we did, we did, uh, we were innovative in our own ways, in our own uh, mechanism, and how we did things. Mm-hmm. But I also want to say one thing: we, we better not have all the intelligence and the videos and stuff like that. But, but I think that with uh, our troops, did a heck of a job like that. Well, I'm actually surprised nobody wanted to go with you. Well, not at that particular time, but I will tell you that later on, when I transferred to El Paso, I never had a lack of volunteers to work with me some and some of the things that came out were were really great on it so i think it's more of a not having known you know all of a sudden uh you know it's a, it's a very different era the, the coordination was 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 very different uh, i think uh, you know certainly i think we've grown to to too many good things and uh and some of the things are a little bit frustrating because in some cases uh, it's very hard to get uh to get Agreed. Now, I know that we probably don't need to go through the entire uh, episode because people can read it in Shadowcatcher, and I think they should because that's where they get the full brunt of it. One of the things I noticed is, first of all, your attention to detail is just simply amazing, how you recall everything. And I mean, there was... I'm reading this book and I and I won't start smelling what you can smell there. I can I see what you can see there. I'm experiencing the anxiety that you're, you're experiencing because you had a way of writing about it that really drew me into that whole situation. And uh, one of the things I found in particular was that uh, throughout the process, right, getting picked up in Juarez and the things that happened subsequently, waiting for your ride to get ready, them dragging you out at night and throwing you behind a truck and a lot of the really amazing things that happened where you worked your way into becoming part of that, like actually transporting that load, right? Well, that's correct, yeah. We, we had the, 
you know, with the, uh, un unfortunately, there was a period of time where our agents in El Paso who had not been advised that I was in the low uh, set of surveillance on the house, so we couldn't leave during that period of time because the people inside could see them. Uh, and on, on one occasion, when I was in the back of, uh, of the U-Haul, uh, you know, I, I don't think I mentioned that we, we were placed in the U-Haul and the, the driver and female up front. But uh, we had been placed in the, in the U-Haul and, and we took off and the smuggler, by the way, Gonzalo, got, uh, got scared, so he turned around and uh, went back. And so the, the lady who ran the place, she was an older lady, and she ran that place like you can't believe. And, and by the way, uh, I could wait to lose weight. Uh, I was there for a period of time, and the only thing we got was bean soup. Uh, and so uh, by the time I got to Chicago, I had lost 10 pounds. But uh, that, that's a little bit of a side story. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, I got the, uh, I, I went in uh, in the back of the U-Haul, because they, they pushed me to the back of the U-Haul. When the driver came back around, I told... Uh, uh, Mr. Medina, uh, I said, look, uh, if I had been driving, we would have made it. And uh, Gonzalo got really ticked off at me for, for doing that. So he told me that you and I are going to have some issues later on. And so uh, mm -hmm. that's the way it stayed. The, the next day, uh, we were placed back in the in the U-Haul. And I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in my book, but as I was getting into the truck, we had a, a board to walk up the steps. And I was looking around so I would be able to remember the faces of the other smugglers because remember, I might want to be, be going through an adventure, but ultimately I have to write this down and testify about it. Well, when I do that, Gonzalo sees that and gives me a nudge. And I end up falling and hitting the side of my head and I still have the big scar in the back of my head, which uh, ultimately I ended up having to be operated on. Mm. But nevertheless, the second day when we, took, when, when we take off, I'm in the back, but Gonzalo spots some uh, highway patrolmen. So he gets scared and stops the truck, and he opens up the back, and he says, okay, so here's your stuff, you can drive now. <laughs> and uh, that, it was a tremendous blessing, and I'm glad that I set it up from the very beginning, Gil, because otherwise I would have had no way of controlling the load from there up Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. And so uh, you make, you're making your way through. But the one of the things that you really bring out that I was listening, that I was reading, was the fact of the, the just the humanity of the entire situation. You're looking at the the people that are stuck back there, trapped. You you talked about the bean soup getting watery and more watery and more watery as the days went by. And uh, they were malnourished. They were they weren't being cared for. They were sitting in their own filth. And uh, you also talked about, in particular, a young girl, uh, 13 years old, that had gotten raped initially before you even started the trip. Right? That's correct. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when I got smuggled into El Paso, uh, most of the group was already there. Because uh, I, I came in at three or four o'clock in the morning, uh, or in the early morning hours, I can't remember. But there was a, a young girl that was on the cement floor that would not move. And uh, there was an older lady there with the group. And I, I, was, uh, I was laying on the floor with them as well. And uh, I said, uh, Senora Guadalupe, what, 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 is she okay? What happened to her? And he said, no, she got, smuggled, she got raped by Jose uh, when we were being smuggled. And he separated her from the group and, and raped her. And I'll tell you, that was a very, very difficult thing to see. And 
uh, almost to the point that I, I wanted to take the load down at that particular time, but I knew that the odds would be against me because of the fact that we don't, I didn't know she would test the part, whatever, but nevertheless, so she, she was, she was raped, and then when we get, we're in the back of the U-Haul, uh, you know, we're bouncing up and down, and I go over to the young girl, and I try to give her some uh, encouragement, and I, you know, I reached over, and I said, everything's going to be okay, and I saw how she pulled away with such fear. But one of the things that I thought about that time, I said, I will not rest until I go back and get this bastard and make sure he's behind bars. Yeah, because you mentioned later on in that same instance that um, Gonzalo had plans for her, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah thank you for reminding me of that. So by, by the time that we get to, I'm in the front of the, uh, of the U-Haul, Gonzalo and I had already decided, if I had not been a federal agent, that we were really going to go at it when we stopped. It was a mutual decision that kept repeating itself along the way because of our <laughs> lack of admiration for each other. Yeah. And... Uh, so when we got up there, and we're in, I think in somewhere in southern Illinois, he takes the little girl and puts her in the front seat. And by this time, uh, I'm driving uh, just a few hours away from Chicago. And I uh, and I said, "What are you doing?" And he says, "No, he says uh, I got plans for her when we arrive, uh, and uh, she and I are going to have a good time." And I looked at him and said, "Oh, you will not." And uh, I said, you're not going to do anything to her. And uh, he said, oh, like, something to the effect, are, are you going to stop me? And, and I said, you're not going to do anything to her. And I decided to be quiet because one of the things we're going to cover is that you want to be a good listener, not a talker all the time. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, they might, it might not sound like that right now, but uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a reality and a character that we have to follow. But nevertheless, uh, so when we get up there, uh, Gary Rennick and I, my partner, had done a case uh, in Juliet, Illinois. And I remember that station, but before I got up there, I had no way of communicating with any, anybody, Gil. And if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you the part of the story before we get to Joliet. Absolutely. Uh, along, along the way, along the way, you know, I kept thinking, I got to let somebody know I'm on my way up there. So I went into a place uh, on, on the west of Chicago. And for those that don't know, and I encourage them to, to take a look at the book, uh, I had a big afro at, at the time. <laughs> So uh, I went into the bathroom of this uh, hick town up in, the, I can't remember exactly where it was, Missouri or whatever, and uh, we didn't have as many gas stations as we have now. So I, uh, I went into the bathroom and I wrote a note uh, on a paper napkin that I wanted to give to the attendant to call my wife because I hadn't been in contact with anybody. So I went up there and I said, sir, and I had given him the, the, the note. Now, mind you, those of us who have worked uh, monthly load for somebody who has been in a car and a trunk and back at you all has been gone for 10 days, you generally get pretty right. Yeah. And uh, so I walked up to the guy and I said, look, I'm a federal agent. I need you to get this note to, to my wife. And he's looking at me <laughs> with this unruly afro that I have. Yeah. Uh, you know, I stink. And he said, oh, no, get away from here. About that time, Gonzalo uh, starts... Uh, I'm walking over towards us, and, and I said, please. And he didn't want to take the note. And he saw when I started looking at Gonzalo, I don't know, I got the intervention or whatever, but uh, he took the note and put it under the uh, under uh, under the register. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so I took off having no idea. But in that note, 
I told my wife, tell Gary I will meet him at midnight at the Exxon station in Joliet. That was the entire amount of communication to Gary. From, uh, and so it gives you an idea how close we were in working those kind of things, even without the lack of communication. So, uh, but here's the funny thing. So the, the, the gentleman at the, at the store called my wife Colette and she refused to take the call. Oh. She, wow. she had no idea, you know, something to the effect, man, you have a collect call from a jerk for Jim McGuire? I don't know any Jim McGuire. Boom. Uh, <laughs> so the, uh, he calls again and she refuses to accept it. He calls once more, uh, Gil, I think. And then, uh, he says, he says something over the operator. Tell her I have a no from an undercover agent. <laughs> there was something else. Unbelievable. Now, one of the things also that you mentioned in this event was the fact that you thought you had backup the entire time you were in the middle of this uh, of this operation, didn't you? But you didn't. Well, I thought we had backup. Uh, I, I thought we had backup initially in El Paso because the agents uh, kept preventing us from going, but they were, they were surveilling the house without knowing that I was there. And so, no. And, uh, and yeah, you know, you, you go through the expectations that hopefully I figured, well, I briefed El Paso. I told them where we're going to be at, when we we're going to go. And I figured, and, and, and they saw that there was a U-Haul there uh, at that location. So I kind of, you know, you kind of figured that, uh, that that would happen, but that was not the case. So basically, you were on your own all the way up to the point where you got into that store and snuck that note to that clerk. Oh, that's correct. I was, uh, I was uh, several, several hours away. I guesstimated when we were, we were going to get there. So, but I want to come back to the story of Gonzalo. And uh, I guess, uh, as we see, the statute of limitations has expired, right? Not, not that I did anything criminally uh, <laughs> in that aspect. But, Which is my, so, my next favorite phrase ever also. Yeah. So, so, so Gonzalo, we get up there. Um, when we stop at the at the Joliet store, by, because by this time I'm driving, so I'm controlling. It was upset that I stopped because we, we didn't need gas. But, so, so, uh, when we stopped, I jumped out of the vehicle and I spotted Gary. So he had understood my note pretty well. And uh, I uh, I ran in, I said, Gary, give me five minutes with his turkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you got it, partner. And so, so I went and opened the door and I said, uh, Gonzalo, uh, now's the time. And uh, he said, yes, it is. Gonzalo had entered his stove, uh, kicking either one of the agents or when he threw a kick at me, I, I don't know, but it had, it, it had gotten really, really swollen. And as I was getting there, in my mind, I said, that's the first place I'm going to put the herd on him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when he jumped out of the U-Haul, and he was ready for me, and I took a big step and stepped all over his big toe. And you can imagine, he dropped his hands in a hurry, and you know where the next blow landed. So I, I took him down. I, I have to say that uh, it was, uh, I, I hit it three or four times and, and uh, then Gary, by that time, got back there with our backup team. I, I don't encourage anybody to hit anybody, Bill. I, I, I'm not promoting that. I know. Um, <laughs> but how satisfying just, uh, that must have been. How satisfying that must have been. Yeah, well, you know, I think, uh, at the, of course, the, the little girl was, uh, was, uh, was pretty, uh, pretty scared, but yeah. nevertheless, uh, you know, I think uh, it was a little bit of a, a, a payback, a little bit of uh, home justice, and 
Look, I don't encourage anybody to get into situations like that. But they, of course. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, it was uh, that's 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 what it was. And you know, Mr. Gonzalo ultimately ended up going to jail for his crimes. And uh, uh, you know, I was uh, that that case was successful. But again, I, I think uh, coming back to our story, you know, it was uh, it was a pioneer in being able to do that because you know we we work very closely from Chicago with the uh, Border Patrol agents and uh, all, all over the uh, all over the southwest uh, part of the United States. And uh, it was a big joint thing back then with the patrol uh, investigations and other agencies working close together. Correct. And now, um, one of the things, though, that I also wanted to mention was you never knew whether or not that clerk actually transferred that that message to your wife until you showed up in Chicago and saw that backup show arrive, correct? Well, that, that's correct. And again, I want to say one thing uh, also, and, and I thank you for the comments on my book on the, uh, on the details. Uh, my, my, uh, I have to give, give credit to that to, to my wife, Terry, because I know when I, was, uh, when I started writing, you know, she would uh, look at the, what I was writing and, and uh, you know, I, I wrote reports for prosecution, not not reports for storytelling. Yes. So, so you know, she would uh, often say, "Look, uh, this is great, but can you put us there? Can you put a little bit more detail? Can you tell us what it smells like? Can you tell us, you know, what the other person was looking like?" So, mm -hmm. uh, I have to thank her for that. Uh, well, I do too, because you know, she made you know, she helped you make this a very readable, very, um, uh, you know just a great read that it was every last detail man i drank that in just um in anticipation to see what was going to happen next and like i said it drew me into the story so well that i think i started to smell the aliens because i i also i too know what what uh, people smell like after being you know stuck or uh, you know not having a shower for uh, you know a week on end and so i was able to you know put myself right in there and uh but i just you know one of the things that uh, that stood out to me was also was the fact that um you know because you were looking at this instance of human suffering and we all experience we, we all have to come to terms with that in one way or another but you, one of the things that, that you that I, I think you conveyed in your story was the fact that you you knew you you had even more intent and more passion to take down the people that were exploiting what you call the pollitos in the you know uh, in that were being um, you know smuggled, but you wanted to punish the smugglers. You wanted to punish the cartel, punish those guys, and then after a while, you had to kind of remember that you were going to have to arrest those same people as well. Yeah, it, you know, I think uh, I, I try to make very clear in my, in my book that while I, I want to have uh, emphasis for, for people seeking a better way of life, uh, when I took that oath, uh, I had no doubt about my my responsibilities were. Correct. One is because of the fact that I'm, I'm very proud of our country, Bill. I'm mm -hmm. very proud to be an American. I think the greatest country in the world, and we're a generous country. Uh, you know, and, and I like to say we're a benevolent country because we actually do protect a lot of people that uh, might not protect themselves. But, but at the end of the day, there was no doubt what my oath was. Uh, and my responsibilities, my and and I was going to follow them. And yes, it's uh, you know you you could not be in the back of a U-Haul with a five-year-old kid telling you that he's looking forward to start kindergarten when he gets to Chicago, when you know he's not going to get there. So you know those those kind of things. Uh, I, I think anybody would think about it. And I think we, we can be as hard as anybody. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we we know what our jobs are. 
Absolutely, and that, and that's why I think it resonated with me as well, is because I have uh, I also too do my job, no question asked. But I also feel the the yeah, I don't know the 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 burden of the fact of just knowing that people are struggling and suffering. That that doesn't mean you compromise your job. No, that doesn't mean it at all. But it also means that we are human beings doing a job that can at times be very very. Uh, oh man, just make you introspective about humanity, about life, and make you think about those things. Even though they won't result, like you said, you you still you knew you had a job to do and you did your job, but um, it's still having to deal with the humanity of the situation, so to speak. That's correct. And I think also, you know, most of us, the great majority of us who have been agents, I spent thirty years with Border Patrol, INS, and uh, ultimately DHS. You know, we also recognize that we are in a situation on the illegal alien population, and I make it clear in my book, because of the fact that we've allowed employers to get away with it throughout the years. Yeah. They, they have been the mag magnet of doing that. Yes, you know, scrupulous employers, you know, the, the system where, you know, at one, at one time in El Paso, you would not be prosecuted by the federal prosecutor if you only had five illegals in your group. So you could have five illegals in, in the trunk of your car, and the U.S. Attorney's Office would not accept the prosecution. Mm -hmm. So you know what they did, the smuggler did, they would put five. Five and five and five, and you know, I think, uh, you know, so I think that it's a, it's a combination of things, Gil. You know, we, we're going to do our job, we feel compassion, but I think we also need to address the fact that, and, I, and just about every single agent that I've known throughout my career would say the same thing. If the aliens cannot get a job in the United States because they're not doing that job, we would not be where we're at today. Correct, and even up to even up till recent times, they still are not. Uh, they, they don't prosecute smugglers at all. I mean, I've seen wow. most of the time we have to just dismiss the case, and uh, the uh, uh, attorney, the U.S. attorney, dismisses those cases, and we are just look, looking at us, our, ourselves at each other, going, "Well, you know, sometimes you say, well, why am I still doing this dang job if uh, we're we're out here, you know, risking everything and doing what we can to, you know, funnel, you know, to to uh, stop the flow?" But you're absolutely correct. It's like if the if the system itself isn't going to do anything about it, then they literally have left us. You know, kind of hanging in midair, doing a job that basically is just kind of chasing our tails. But the, you wanted more than that, and that's why you moved on from the patrol. You you went in and you started, you know, volunteered for these major projects. One of the ones I want to get to right now is before we move on is also the, uh, you dealt with somebody uh, named Margarito Flores in a in a heroin uh, with a with a heroin delivery, right? Well, that, that's correct. Uh, you know, I. And that, that, that's a, uh, a great reminder, because Margarito Flores, I, one of the things that I mentioned in my book is that Margarito Flores abused the generosity of our country. You, you know, we welcomed him to the country, and all he did was become a, a, a criminal here. Uh, uh -huh. Margarito Flores, by the way, had, had been arrested something like 16 times by U.S. Border Patrol mm. before I met Mr. Flores. But Margarita Flores actually was a human smuggler during that period of time who decided to get into the narcotics business because he had been smuggling some of the drug dealers uh, into the United States. And so he saw that there was a lot of money in it. Margarita Flores ultimately, uh, I met with Margarita Flores again, no, no backup. Uh, and, and that's only saying because it was on a Saturday. But Margarita Flores said that he had 28 pounds of heroin that he needed to sell. 
when Gary Rennick and I told DEA that this guy wanted to sell 28 pounds of heroin, they laughed and they said nobody has that kind of heroin <laughs> to, to sell. And so so we, we said, well, 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 we'll try it. And, and we had a great liaison by him, Norbert Cookstein in Chicago. And uh, so we passed it on to him uh, with, with our informant and us working it because no other DEA agents were, were working. And uh, ultimately, I met with Margarito and I told him I can only take 13 pounds because I figured that if he was really a, a smuggler and I told him I would take the 28 pounds, he would have the same reaction. Where are you going to get the money or whatever? But anyway, uh, Margarito Flores was, uh, he said, I'm leaving today. So he went to Juarez, picked up the 28 pounds of heroin, and drove back to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'll never forget on March 13th of 1982, on a Friday, uh, our woman called us up real early. He said, I have a heroin sample for you guys. And uh, so we went and picked it up, and very unusual, they had given us a two-ounce heroin sample, which is not common in the, in the, in the drug world. And uh, so by that time, we, we figured that we did have a, a good operation with Margarito Flores. Uh, we, uh, we ended up, uh, we ended up uh, going to DEA, meeting up with the guys, and we were not very happy because it was Friday afternoon, uh -huh. 5 o'clock in the afternoon, that uh, we're going to go out to meet with Mr. Flores. And we put a briefcase uh, with supposedly about $175,000 in there. Then we substituted a DEA agent for me uh, for the last minute. So he, he went in with the money uh, at a McDonald's and uh, had a brief meeting with Mr. Flores for about five minutes. And the deal was made. Uh, Mr. Flores had the heroin in the station wagon in front of his house. And uh, uh, ultimately, uh, you know, we, of course, we, we, we took him down. But part of the story is this, uh, you know, this is way back, uh, you know, what, 40 years ago, uh, on, on the drug smuggling, Mr. Flores, uh, from, you know, from, from Mexico. And at the time, his wife was seven months pregnant. And Mr. Flores asked me, he says, can you do me a favor when you find that I was? Don't put my handcuffs on me, so because my wife doesn't miscarry. So I, I, I talked to the DEA agent, and, uh, so I told him, Mr. Flores, do you have any weapons? Do you have any more heroin? He said, yes, I do. And so he showed us what he had and told us where the remaining portion of the heroin was in the car that had not been delivered. So we didn't handcuff him. So his wife could not, uh, was not a difficult pregnancy. Mm -hmm. We leave. Mr. Flores gets sentenced to 15 years. Before that, two months later, his wife gives birth to a couple of twins, Pedro and Margarita Flores. A year later, Mr. Flores calls me and warns me of a contract on my life, uh, and ultimately I ended up moving from Chicago because of the because of the threats on my life and my family. Yes, uh, from from the, who he reported and the other group. But those twins that were born went on to become the cartel heads in Chicago: Margarito Flores and Pedro Flores. Uh, and I'm sure if you Google them, you'll find. You'll, you'll, feel, you'll, you'll know the story. They, they, they became the cartel leaders, I believe, for the Sinaloa cartel in Chicago. Uh -huh. And they were, uh, you know, they were doing millions and millions of dollars until they became informants and were responsible for part of the arrest of El Chapo in Mexico. So it's uh, part of the old INS, part of the old patrol, uh, you know, helping the new generation. So uh, Margarito Flores' twin sons... 
Pedro and Margarito became heads of the cartel in Chicago and later on became informants for DEA and they were instrumental in bringing down El Chapo in recent times. That is that is some amazing history right there. Amazing history. And so you then ended up that you had mentioned earlier that you ended up having to transfer from Chicago because of a threat on your life and family. How did you find out about that? Well, uh, Mar Mar Margarito Flores actually called me from the jail uh, one time, and uh, he, he, he again he called collect. We almost didn't take his call either at the office. Uh, after he had already been sentenced, and he called me up, and Gary Reddick and I were at the office, and luckily I answered the phone, and he told me, he says, I'm not calling you because I'm your friend, I don't want to be your friend, I'll never call you again, but I've never forgotten that you didn't, you know, that you didn't handcuff me in front of my wife, and he says, uh, I pay you back the favor, I'll never call you again, you need to be careful because they're planning a contract on you. Oh. And so then, that was the beginning uh, of that particular contract, and we, we investigated uh, everything we possibly could. Uh, I was offered a transfer at that time, and I did not accept it. Uh, but I believe about two months later, we got another threat that was supposedly orchestrated by Newton Van Drunen, who by that time I had arrested again uh, after he had uh, escaped from prison. Wow. So he uh, he escaped prison and uh, and you you ended up catching him again yourself. And Mr. Van Drunen uh, was was given a, a quick furlough and he never went back to prison and he set up an even bigger counterfeiting operation in Joliet, Illinois. And uh, so we David Garcia at that time was heading up the operation and I worked it together. He and I was both undercover on that. And ultimately, I spotted Mr. Van Drunen. In Joliet, Illinois, uh, there's a, an interesting part of that story. When uh, when we blocked him in to arrest him, Mr. Van Drunen had a driver, and they took off, killed, and they ended up uh, hitting me with, with a car. And I, I think I was dragged for about 30 yards. And uh, ultimately, I got the driver uh, with a blow to, to the head. I don't, I don't know how far we went, but we ended up crashing into a utility pole. And Mr. Van Drunen uh, was... Uh, was uh, detained. Uh, he had uh, all kinds of documents uh, that he was printed in Joliet. I mean, it was uh, so monumental that they ended up taking the, the equipment and a lot of the documents to the academy for training purposes. I, I don't know what became of them. But uh, so Mr. Van Drunen, after that particular arrest, which occurred in November uh, of 1990, 1981, uh, Mr. Van Drunen got some of his people that I had arrested on the smuggling case to conceive another attempt on my life. And at that time, the service asked me to do, uh, well, uh, offer me a transfer to Chicago, to Denver, uh, to Denver and El Paso. And, and I took the one in El Paso. I transferred out there with the district office and Mr. Van Drunen was given a furlough a few years, uh, a couple of years later uh, and went to Living Waters across the river from where I was stationed. No. And so let me ask you this, just real, just off off topic, real quick. Does does your wife uh, Terry now take all collect calls now at this time? <laughs> the technology doesn't require require that, but she blocks calls that she doesn't know. <laughs> and so you ended up moving to El Paso in '82, 
But in 85, you ended up joining the El Paso Sector Anti-Smuggling Unit. I am assuming the Border Patrol uh, El Paso Anti-Smuggling Unit, or was it the uh, CIS? No, no, he was at El Paso Border Patrol. Okay. Uh, we had a fantastic chief, we had a fantastic chief by, by the name of uh, Larry Richardson. Uh, we, we also had uh, Mike Williams uh, uh, was the chief subsequent to that, but I, I didn't stay there very long after, after my destination because, unfortunately, Larry passed away when I was an agent. But, uh, you know, uh, Larry, uh, Larry was a good chief. He gave me a lot of latitude as well. Uh, and he, uh, I had a lot of respect for him and, and he, you know, he, he took me for the, position in El Paso. I was a young agent, and I'm sure you've been in the service long enough to know that back then, you only had four to eight ASU agents in the sector. There was not a lot of them. Right. And to get to that particular position uh, took a lot of years. So, and I was pretty fortunate. I think I was 32 years old at, at the time, or 33, 32 years old. So it was, uh, it, it was great. And uh, it was a fantastic move uh, to the Border Patrol I hope you enjoyed part two of our interview with Hipólito Acosta. These two podcasts constitute only the first half of the interview. We will finish our interview with Hipólito Acosta and take up where he and his partner get arrested in Mexico, <laughs> outed as federal agents, and thrown in the jail in the same cell as the smugglers they were trying to catch. I, for one, cannot wait to hear it. If you want a head start, go get his first book, Shadow Catcher, by Hipólito Acosta, available online at Amazon.com and anywhere other books are sold. Come and browse through the Old Patrol HQ store for some amazing products that you can wear proudly, honoring the history, heritage, and legacy of the patrol with a few shenanigans along the way. Ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first. Honor always. Thank you.